Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the 411 Ground and Pound MMA podcast, your weekly look into the wide, wacky, wonderful world of mixed martial arts. I'm Robert Winfrey. I'm your host for the show. And I'm going to be flying solo tonight. Uh, the world's crazy. I don't know what else to tell you. Jeff's here when he can be. I have other people who are occasionally uh, are occasionally interested in being on the show. They all know that they've got invitations if they have the time and the inclination and so on and so forth. But the world's crazy, so you stuck with just me this time. All right, tonight, a review. Last night, UFC 254. Um, not a tremendous amount to talk about coming out of that, but uh, what there is to talk about is... Uh, <laughs> Probably going to take a little bit of time, so we'll dive into that. This coming Saturday, on Halloween, there will be UFC on ESPN Plus 39. It is supposed to be, according to Anderson Silva and Dana White, the final fight of Anderson Silva in the UFC. So, we'll be giving that card a preview, and then not a whole lot of news this week, so... We'll see if anything else crazy breaks, but I've got one, maybe two things to talk about, so we'll kind of see how that goes by the time we get around to that. All right, without further ado, let's go ahead and get into tonight's topics. So first up, UFC 254 yesterday, early morning show, your main event. Really don't know quite where to start with this one, so let's start. No, I do. Let's let's start with the fight itself, and then we'll get to some of the other stuff after that. Khabib Nurmagomedov retains his UFC lightweight title via technical submission in the second round. I think it was one thirty something of the second, one thirty four of the second. Um, sorry, just. Before I talk about that, there were a couple of instances of poor refereeing at this event. One of them came out of this fight. Um, Justin Gaethje tapped multiple times. And for some reason, Jason Herzog decided, no, 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 you're going to, I wish for you to go all the way to sleep. I don't know why, but he just completely missed that more than once. Uh, bad job on that call. Now, it doesn't mean Herzog's a bad ref. Just to be abundantly clear, he's got a lot of very good calls under his belt. He botched this one. Uh, the fight itself, the first round for about four minutes or so was, wasn't a blowout either way. I thought of, I was leaning Gagey, uh, kind of as, as we hit the four minute mark. He was landing some really nice leg kicks. He had a few decent punches, uh, nothing you know, earth-shattering, but he was making contact. Uh, Khabib landed some leg kicks of his own. Uh, his jab was... I mean, we're going to talk in a bit about a fighter with a really good jab. Khabib's jab is not bad. I mean, we can all joke about it after... I mean, we all kind of joked about it just a little bit after the... Iaquinta fight because Al Iaquinta doesn't move his head. So naturally, anyone with even the semblance of a decent jab is going to wind up looking uh, like someone who's got a world-class jab. And Khabib's jab is not 
you know, world class in that respect, but it's good. And it started kind of showing up as well in that first round. Uh, both men landed punches. What kind of started getting things in Khabib's favor? One, his cage cutting, which is not great. I hate to phrase it like that, but it's good. And Khabib's cage cutting actually gets better kind of as time goes on. <laughs> so whereas the first half or so of the round, Justin was very, very diligent about keeping his back off of the fence, which is very important when fighting Khabib. Khabib in open space is a significantly more manageable challenge than Khabib against the fence. That's not news. That's been somewhat well-known for a while. But it's certainly true. And uh, to be clear, Khabib in open space is not easy. But if you have to fight him in open space versus fighting him against the fence, one of those things is very much not like the other. So, <laughs> uh, he was, and to Justin's credit, doing a really good job of keeping his back off the fence, trying to hold the center, still being mobile, but not getting, uh, not getting, uh, pressured too much in a line. But the more the fight wore on, the more Khabib's just kind of constant, relentless forward pressure started eating away at Justin's footwork. It started wearing him down, and he started getting closer and closer to the fence. And then, I think with about a minute or so left in the fight, right around there, Khabib finally gets a takedown. Uh, passes to full mount almost immediately. Goes to S-mount, looks for an arm bar, drops back for it, winds up in spider web control, and the round ends. Now, Two of the judges gave the first round to Justin Gagey, and again, up until the four-minute mark, I would have agreed. And it's not like even, if it had just been a takedown, I still would have probably gone with Gagey, but Khabib didn't just get a takedown, he got a takedown and secured a very dominant position. I mean, Mount is the, I because MMA scoring has kind of imported the uh, jiu-jitsu positional hierarchy. Mount is the second best position you can get. The best being back mount. Now, that's not quite as true in MMA as it is in jiu-jitsu. In fact, I think in MMA... Uh, believe it or not, in MMA, three-quarter mount might be the best position. Uh, if you can hold it. Because a lot of guys are good at defending from the back and they know how to limit your attack options. And from the mount, a lot of people, I mean, a lot of people who look at technique and have talked about this for a while, uh, Jack Slack, Robin Black, Luke Thomas, I think even BJJ Scout. Uh, in MMA, the mount is kind of a lost art. You know, people don't... Uh, I've been around the sport long enough to remember a time when full mount was death. Somebody got full mount, that was... And that's because the fight was over at that point. It was very rare to see someone escape mount. Now it's fairly common. Some of that's because fighters are better off of their backs. Some of it's because fighters aren't necessarily putting as much effort into understanding all the positional nuances of mount. But neither here nor there. He got a dominant position. And 
made a legitimate attack at a fight-ending submission. And given as close as the round had been up to that point, Gagey favored, but close, I was of the opinion that was enough to give Khabib the round. I thought he won that round. Now, two of the judges disagreed. I disagree with uh, professional judges fairly frequently, it turns out, but uh, I'm not going to get too hung up on that. Second round, more of that just relentless forward pressure from Khabib, followed by uh, a really nice... His takedown in the second round, um, it's a thing of beauty. He's coming forward. Uh, Gagey lands a really good... Uh, Justin, after the fact, has said, yeah, I think I was only one or two leg kicks away from having him in a you know, not really be able to walk anymore kind of kind of place. And I don't know whether or not that's entirely accurate, but those leg kicks were adding up fairly quickly. Um, right before this takedown, Khabib had switched his stance for a little bit after taking one. Justin has you know, very, very hard leg kicks. Uh... So, they were clearly doing something. These weren't, uh, you know, sometimes, I, I hate to say it this way because it sounds like I'm overly picking on this specific fighter, but they weren't, um, you know, Frankie Edgar leg kicks, which is just to say that Frankie is pretty good about landing leg kicks, but there's a very open question about how much damage they do, how... How damaging are they? What part of the leg is he landing with? Is it really impacting anything? And Frankie is far from the only fighter that this is true of, but he's a somewhat ubiquitous enough figure that I think most people will understand the reference when I say, you know, the when I use him as one end of the spectrum about the efficacy of, le of your leg kicks versus the other, which is someone like Barboza or Deji who will cripple you. And so he, I think he was probably fairly correct about that. Those were starting to have an impact on things. How close he was to, you know, really badly crippling Khabib or, you know, massively, you know, completely turning the tide of the fight. I don't know. And we never will because the fight ended not too long after that. But he landed a good one. Khabib shoots a double and Gaethje's back is to the fence when this whole thing starts. Gaethje kind of pivots in turn so that he's not sprawling into the fence, he's sprawling away from it. Which is a really good move on his part. Like That that bit of technical maneuvering there, really well done. Uh, unfortunately, Khabib is very deep on this. His hands are kind of up on the hamstrings of Gagey. And Khabib uses this uh, you know, angular rotation to continue spinning all the way around and nearly get the back. He starts getting towards the back. Gagey kind of tries to wrap either a wizard or the head, but can't halt Khabib's momentum, so he abandons it to try and base down and then get up quickly. Khabib's just faster than he is. Khabib gets all the way to his back, and as Gagey is trying to brace up, there's enough of a, enough stability there for Khabib to jump to the back. Jumps to the back, full back mount, uh, winds up getting full mount, goes to S-mount again, Roll uh, locks up kind of a mounted triangle position, and from there, when you roll, you can attack an armbar, which he threatens to do, and uses most of and mostly uses that threat to then lock up a triangle choke. Turns the angle, 
Uh, underhooks the leg to completely shut down all of Gagey's potential escape avenues. Uh, Gagey tries to tap. As previously discussed, the ref misses it. Gagey goes to sleep. Khabib lets go. Uh, it was a... That's about as good a performance as you can have against Justin Gagey. I mean, Gagey's had the two losses before, but... I mean, look at what they had to go through. Eddie Alvarez and Dustin Poirier both had to wade through hell to beat Justin Gagey. And to their eternal credit, they did. You know, everyone else that he's fought has been unable to do that. They just get into that wood chipper, and Gagey, of course, also was a slightly different fighter at that point in time versus now, but it's, it's just not easy to do. You know, uh, Alvarez late in the third got one. Uh, Poirier all the way into the fourth. And, I mean, Justin's leg kicks tore Poirier's quad uh, in that fight. He, he, look at Eddie Alvarez's face after that fight. Eddie didn't say that Justin was the toughest guy he'd ever fought for nothing. That was a brutal fight. <laughs> And Khabib gets through him in six and a half minutes. Uh, it's... You almost lack words in some respects, because that doesn't seem all that possible, and yet that's what happened. Um, I've seen some people uh, question a little bit the cardio of Gagey, because he was a little bit huffing and puffing after the first round. And they... They kind of mentioned, you know, the guy went five rounds with Tony Ferguson and was fine the whole time. Not as much here. I would point to a couple of things before people get too, again, kind of conspiratorial about this. One is that look at the pace of that fight versus the pace of this fight. It's not that the fight between Gaethje and Tony isn't active. Because there's stuff happening, but there's big segments of time in that fight when one of them will reset. Somebody, Justin gets too close to the fence, doesn't like his positioning, and he hops and he bails, circles Tony, accommodates that. There's times when Justin would push Tony back to the fence, decides he doesn't want to risk too much going in there looking for a finish. He backs off and resets. That, that was fairly common. So while you do have a fairly high pace between those two, it's a lot of, it's it's a bit more rhythmic, if that makes sense. There's a, again, there's a flow to it. And it's not, a, it's not an easy flow to maintain. I couldn't fight at the pace those two did for, I couldn't do it for five rounds, much less 25 or, you know, 20 and change as, as long as they went. But f a fight with a cadence to it, especially a fight with a cadence that doesn't have a lot of, movement. And it's, again, it's not that those two didn't move at all, but rewatch that fight, and when they get into engagement range, they don't really move a whole lot. They, there's little bits of shifting, but when one of them gets to a position they don't like and they reset, and the other one kind of, again, kind of accommodates it, then they go back to kind of, you know, more minimal movements, 
as they kind of look for angles more than, you know, giant positions in the cage. Here, by contrast, Khabib did a lot of chasing Justin and a lot of making Justin move just constantly because uh, Justin really doesn't want to be on the fence for understandable reasons. So every time he gets there, he's got to try and circle off. Khabib did not really accommodate, not only did he not really accommodate his desire to reset, Tony's not much of a cage cutter. He's got good footwork in, you know, how he moves around angles and whatnot, but anytime Tony wants to press you back, if you can hit, he's, he can be fairly linear about that, or very uh, kind of laissez-faire about it. He's just so confident in his overall game set that, yeah, sure, if you want to circle around here, if I don't get you pinned up there, he doesn't care a whole lot, or he hasn't to this point. He's gotten a lot of people against the fence because a lot of people don't have good ring craft. Gagey did in their fight. And his kind of, again, relaxed, not going to freak out about it attitude, let Gagey constantly reset. Khabib, by contrast, a lot of just pressure, a lot of in your face. And having to move your body around a whole lot like that, even if you're not exchanging punches with another human being, is tiring. So, I, I don't think there was a big issue with Gagey's preparation as far as that goes. I think it's just a very different pace and a very different style of cardio taxing that it was going on here versus when he fought Tony. This is one of those things about Khabib that kind of gets overlooked. He keeps a extremely high pace when he's fighting. He is always in your face. He is always coming, almost always coming forward. Especially once he starts feeling the fight and he starts feeling good about stuff. Uh, he's really moving forward. That is a whole other level of tiring to deal with versus what you dealt with. Even, even the guys that Tony Ferguson has melted with his you know, pressure and his pace... If you rewatch those fights, it's a lot more... Ah, how do I say this? It's just a different... It's a different kind of pace and a different kind of pressure. It's a little bit more... Uh, there's a reason that there were some comparisons between uh, Tony Ferguson and Max Holloway. Max can keep a very high pace, but he's not frantic about it. And it, the crazy thing about Max and Tony in this respect... Their pace doesn't change. Once they establish how, once they establish their pace, what they want to do, they don't deviate from it, and they find minor openings and then exploit them until you're done. And that is a deeply effective way of fighting. You know, both of those men had extreme success and probably will again in the future. But that's not the same as what Khabib does. Even at distance, Khabib will make you sprint rather than... Because Tony and Max, you know, and other fighters of that kind of ilk, they're not sprinters unless they think there's a finish. They are very, to kind of continue the metaphor, they're very, very fast marathoners. 
You ever got? You guys ever see how you know some of those real distance runners move the the speed that they're moving at? I mean, they've got to keep it up for a long period of time, so it's not the same as someone who sprints. But they're not moving slow. They're not running a marathon like you or I would run a marathon. You know, you are in my take forever. Uh, these guys are moving at a pretty good clip. Uh, Khabib is much more. He much more makes you sprint, and being conditioned for distances versus being conditioned for sprinting. Uh, again, keeping the metaphor, are just two different things. You can wear out someone who, under other circumstances, has exceptional cardio by making them uh, do things that they are not uh, accustomed to. You know, you take a marathoner and make them, you know, run the 100-meter dash. They're going to be huffing and puffing, I guarantee it. By the same t- token, you know, take someone like Usain Bolt, make him run a marathon, and he's not conditioned for that because that's not his sport of choice. How, uh, again, how these gut fighters choose to fight and how they choose to condition themselves for it. You know, how many times have we seen a great striker who we know can fight, you know, 15, 20 minutes, wear themselves out because they choose to spend uh, around grappling? We've all seen that. I assume we've all seen that. I know I have. So, the measure of your cardio is somewhat relative to the activity you're doing in that respect. And when it comes to uh, the way that Khabib was fighting, it just wasn't really what Gagey was, I shouldn't even say prepared for, it may have caught him off guard. It may have just been the first round adrenaline dump. We've all seen that happens too. I mean, Gagey looked a little bit tired after the second round with Tony, and then in the third, he really kind of found his stride. So it's not at all impossible to think that that's kind of just where we were in the first round. Uh, Gagey's cardio might have been perfectly fine, but you know, you're still feeling out the fight, and maybe thing, you know, maybe in another eight minutes, he'd have found his second wind, kind of hit his stride, and had no issues. That's not the way the fight went, because the fight didn't go that long, but I I think there's a there's a bit of a kind of conspiratorial question that people are asking about that, and the, going five rounds into the fifth with Tony Ferguson, while an incredible feat, and certainly a positive indicator of your cardio, that means you can fight you know those five rounds under those conditions. Could be made him fight under different conditions than Tony did. That's, and that, that's just kind of how that, that doesn't mean Khabib's cardio is better than Tony's. It's all about how you choose to manage a fight, manage your energy. And Khabib makes you fight at a pretty frantic pace when he's choosing, when you're going to fight. You know, there's just a very difficult thing to do. He's, we, a lot is made about Tony because Tony does a lot of comebacks or he will drop rounds or get dropped and then come back because his opponent can't sustain what's going on. Uh, Khabib melts people too. <laughs> he, ju- uh, he just doesn't get... Uh, because he does it differently, it's not talked about the same way. Uh, yeah, it... A... a about as flawless a fight as you're going to get against Justin Gagey, uh, because you know, 
beating Gagey at all is unbelievably difficult. The other, the only other two men to beat him looked like they went through a car, like they were in a car crash after that fight. Uh, Khabib, not so much. So, uh, kudos to him. After the fight, uh, Khabib, th this beautiful, beautiful, very memorable, very stunning scene. Uh, after the fight, Khabib kind of goes to the middle of the cage and just collapses to his knees, sobbing. Just the emotional release after everything he'd been through. Uh, and the first, believe it or not, the first person that, that kind of made their way to him was, in fact, Justin Gagey. Uh, uh, you know, Mark Radulich asked me when we talked about the, uh, uh, the television show Kingdom why why I like MMA and I it's a complicated so, you know, why you like anything is a somewhat complicated issue when you really kind of try to nail nail it down beyond saying I like it and I one of the things I mentioned there was that I tend to think of MMA and combat sports more generally as one of the purest expressions of uh, life which might sound really, really stupid, you know, but conflict is inherent to existence. At every level in life, there is conflict. And MMA, combat sports generally, is civilization's attempt to civilize this most basic of realities into a more palatable context than people killing each other in the Roman Colosseum. And I I am drawn a little bit to that because it's it's fascinating to me. It's in some respects in like the purest form of what we would consider sport, uh, you know, competition. This is maybe the purest form because this is what you find naturally. Animals fight. You know, bacteria fight. You know, cellular organisms, you know, things that you only think of on the cellular level, engage in conflict to the extent that they can because that's you know, kind of the nature of existence. So we're seeing that on just this level. And the human side of this is also very interesting to me. I tend not to go in too much for the, for the you know, the drama but as an expression of humanity in the face of adversity, uh, seeing Khabib, who very well, you know, I lost his father earlier this year, who had apparently the training camp from hell. Uh, after the fight, Coach Javier Mendez has told a few different people, uh, including uh, Kevin Ioli, Dana White, Khabib broke his foot three weeks out of the fight. In fact, if you uh, if you watch this fight again, you can see a couple of Khabib's toes, I believe on his left foot, were taped together, which is usually an indicator of broken toes, broken foot. I think he broke both of those particular bones. And apparently, it seems, uh, again, this is what was reported, that, that uh, bone break happened after he recovered from having the mumps? I mean... <sighs> Now, I don't know how much you guys individually want to believe the stories there. 
And you might go, wait, wasn't he vaccinated? Well, Dagestan is not, you know, the United States in terms of you know, necessarily the most readily available vaccines. And if, if he really did have to go through a chunk of his training camp with the mumps and a busted foot, and he did that to Justin Gagey, all in the aftermath of his father's passing. I don't have words, man. I really don't. Uh, after the fight, he announced his retirement, which is kind of the big thing that I want to... I'm going to spend some time talking about this, so... Uh, I hope you don't mind. <laughs> uh, he announced his retirement. He for a variety of reasons. One of the things he said was, you know, I, this is the last time I'm going to walk to the cage without my father. Uh, Abdulmanap was in Khabib's corner for most of his professional career until he got to the UFC. Uh, due to, I don't know, visa issues, you know, some kind of travel issues, might have been timing, might have been any number of things. Um... I think Abdulmanap was only in Khabib's corner for one or two of his fights. Uh, I know he was in his corner for the Poirier fight. There might have been one other before that, but for a guy who spent... Uh, Khabib's been in the UFC for a long time, too. Yeah, he debuted in the UFC in 2012. So for a guy who spent eight years and 17, so he was 16 and 0, you know, 13 fights in the UFC. Five, six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12. Yeah, 13. <sighs> to only have your head, you know, and Abdulmanap was his head trainer in addition to, you know, being his father and them being very close generally. Uh, that's, it's not an easy thing to deal with. Um, so he said, you know, I, I, without his father, he just doesn't necessarily have the same heart for this. Apparently one of the other things he mentioned was he promised his mother this was going to be his last fight. Uh, if you looked at the weight cut, now the way he looked on weigh-in days, oof, he looked terrible. On the scale. Now, how much? Now, again, if the broken foot is true, and if the mumps thing is true, and again, I'm I'm going to operate on the assumption that it's true. You guys are free to disagree with me there. Uh, it, however much skepticism you feel is warranted, go ahead. Uh, that weight cut must have been the worst. I mean, trying to cut weight—that's never been an easy weight cut for Khabib to begin with. Try to cut weight with a broken foot? I mean, you do so much, you know, running or bike work or stuff to try and help you sweat when you're cutting weight. If that's all either minimized or taken away because of that injury. Oh, that that weight cut, you know, knowing what we know, that weight cut almost certainly was just absolute hell. To his credit, he made it. And look, I know there's a bunch of people that kind of looked at the way that weight was handled and well, it was a mechanical scale, and the guy read it quickly, and whatever. Look, I can get up in arms about this, but if you're going to get up in arms about this, you really have to go back 
then you have to cast doubt on every use of a mechanical scale that th throughout the UFC's history. Which is fine if you want to be skeptical about it. I am. You know, I, I genuinely wonder how many times did Matt Hughes weigh 170 and what we like say 170.9 and the guy reading the scale just said yeah Matt Hughes 170 how many times did Tuck, Chuck Liddell come in at you know 205 and a half instead of what we would call 20 instead of 205 on the nose if if everyone involved is going to be using the mechanical scale there's going to be a human error component to it and I, I just don't really have a lot of energy to be outraged about this. I, if, again, if you want to question it, fine. You can be skeptical about the legitimacy of that. Just understand, there's a lot of other questions that are going to have to be raised in that case. And even if you use a digital scale, which I think, they, to be unbelievably clear, I think they should. We have the technology; those are te those are more accurate when properly. So I would just I would rather they use the digital scales, personally, as it removes the ambiguity. Uh, but I I don't have a lot of energy to be horribly you know speculative or outraged by the sequence of events here. Even if they use the digital scale, there is the question of well, what constitutes uh, you know, the weight. Do you have to be 170? It's a, uh, I mean, there was this controversy kind of around uh, when GSP fought Nick Diaz, right? Uh, Diaz claimed that George weighed 170.9 or something. Uh, which he may have. And then afterwards, they the what came out afterwards was that the the policy of they were in Montreal so whatever governing body uh, oversees that will round down as long as you don't hit the next pa full pound they call you good uh, now you guys can feel about that however you want to feel about it that's apparently the stance they take you might be more hardline about this and say if you're 170.1 you have missed weight I, that's not really, I'm not so sure that's my personal perspective, but I don't, dis, I don't blame, I don't, you know, I'm not going to say you're incorrect about that. So, uh, point being, this is the same kind of weigh-in related stuff that's been going on in the UFC since forever. I just don't care that much. Uh, which might sound unbelievably harsh, but if the same guy is doing this, is uh, you know, weighing in everybody, uh, unless you have like, unless you have definitive proof, and I don't mean video of, eh, well, then I just, I would need something. Look, I, I got, I need to see Daniel Cormier resting his, his arm on a towel to take some of the weight off, right? That I take issue with. The built-in human error of using a mechanical scale when everyone knows full well there's built-in human error into that procedure, 
I, I don't know. It, it, it just doesn't rile me up. Um, so, weight cut, big issue for him. Not getting easier. The loss of his father. Uh, now, is this... There's something of an open question about now. Is this retirement going to stick? Given the nature of retirements in MMA and how... <laughs> how much they mean in that respect. I think some skepticism is warranted. Um, do I think it's possible we see Khabib fight again? Yeah. I, I, it's not impossible by any stretch of the imagination. Um, in two years, he might feel very differently uh, about everything and choose to come back. Uh... I would not be shocked. I do think... How do I say this? I do tend to think we might have seen the end of him as a full-time uh, member of the UFC roster. If he comes back, it's going to kind of be more... I think it's going to be more for uh, celebrity fights. Which I don't have any real problem with as long as everyone knows that's what's going on. So... I, I do tend to think that this is probably the, one of the last times we'll see him under normal circumstances. Uh, and that was hard for... I, I, I can't... I don't know why. I, I don't really have a good feeling about why... Because when Khabib announced this, I... Yeah, not gonna lie, I got a little emotional. I teared up a little bit. Uh, and... Some of that's just a lot of the stuff that was going on. I mean, there's his palpable emotion about the whole thing. Uh, I have watched Khabib's entire UFC career live. Not, not rewatched. I have watched live every one of his fights in the UFC. From his debut in Tennessee against Kamal Shalarus, all the way to this fight. And I covered a lot of those fights in the capacity that I cover things. Uh, I don't remember which was the first fights of his that I actively covered. It would have been... Uh, might have been either Tavares or Trujillo. That was 13. Um, I know I covered Horcher. Probably covered the... Do so, somewhere in that... Somewhere in that first couple of... Somewhere in his first, like, five UFC fights would have been the first one that I covered. Because uh, I don't think I covered Shalarus or Tebow. I might have covered Tavares. But, you know, the, you know, the rest of them, I've watched, I've covered, I've seen this man grow as a fighter, as a personality from a guy who was obviously talented but raw and spastic into a guy who was completely, and I, I want to talk about this in a minute, and a guy who in some very, very important fundamental ways reshaped how the sport goes at the moment. <laughs> and yeah, I again, I I got a little bit teary, and they have 
they you know, had that uh, video package they put together about uh, Khabib's father that they they aired earlier in the evening and they reposted it. Uh, the UFC's Twitter account did uh, after the event. And yeah, I I don't know. I've never really before had that kind of an emotional reaction to an athlete uh, retiring. So, a bit of an odd experience, but I've, yeah, that's, I, I'd really, I wish I understood better why. I would like to fully understand the mechanics that were going on there, but um, as far as, and so I'm going to kind of treat his retirement as though it is serious and as though it's going to be the last time we see him. Now, whether that's, whether that holds true or not, does kind of remain to be seen. But I don't mind operating under that assumption for a bit. Uh, there is some discussion, I suppose, about where he falls uh, in the all-time category. I feel fairly strongly he is the best lightweight ever. Uh, this fight in particular kind of cemented that. And that's certainly, that's a heck of an account. I, I know that one of the things that when we talk about who is, you know, the best lightweight ever, especially lightweight being such a good division, uh, BJ Penn's kind of the other name that gets brought up. And BJ Penn in his prime was a truly remarkable fighter. He was hard to damage. I mean, think about all the fights he had, all the wars he had, and how many times did you see that man look like he'd been in a fight afterwards, you know? It, very, very rarely. I think the first time you ever saw him look a little bit lumped up during a fight was when he fought Nick Diaz. I mean, the guy just you didn't hurt, didn't really cut, had exceptional takedown defense, really good jab, power in his punches, uh, a top game in jiu-jitsu, uh, a jiu-jitsu jiu top game that was just uh, amazing. I don't think he would have had... I don't... Uh, how do I say this? There's any number of ways that you can argue Khabib is better, and I think be correct. One is his level of opposition. Now, Khabib beat some of the best lightweights that he could uh, at the time. I mean, he beat Gomi when Gomi was still kind of on a tear. He beat Matt Serra. Uh, he beat, I mean, he beat Diego Sanchez. Uh, he beat a lot of good fighters. I really don't mean to sell that short. Because he beat a lot of very good fighters. I just also think that contemporary the, the level of fighting now is significantly higher than it was then. And I, if you want to argue about how they would match up if they were to fight, I tend to have the following response at the moment. Watch the second fight between George St. Pierre and BJ Penn. 
And I think that's how their fight, a fight between Khabib and BJ Penn would have gone, more or less. Uh, which is to say, badly. Uh, I tend to think uh, Khabib would have finished Penn in the third. Khabib's pace, especially in the grappling, was is just so insane. Everything he does and makes you do is so, so labor-intensive that... Uh, it wears out people. And Penn, I'm not insulting the man's conditioning because I think he absolutely maxim. There's times when he maximized his physical abilities when it comes to cardio. I mean, we, we, I don't think we give cardio the respect it deserves as far as the like individual genetic component. Some people are just built to be cardio machines on a fundamental level, and some are not. It's just about fighting to the best of what your body allows you to do in that respect. And I think Khabib would have gotten BJ to the fence fairly quickly, worn him down, worn him out, and pounded him out. I I feel pretty confident that that he's the best lightweight we've ever seen. And that's that's a heck of a thing. Now, where he, where does he stand all time? There's a lot of arguments, and when you start doing you know all time pound for pound discussions, there's so many different criteria: some objective, some subjective. I'm gonna posit the following statistics when it comes that exist about Khabib Nurmagomedov, and there are there are arguments for other people. Other people fought more often. Other people fought more of their great contemporaries than Khabib did. Uh, some people had more title defenses, etc., etc. There's a lot of there's a lot of arguments to be made across different ways. But Khabib, across his entire UFC career, assuming it is now over, which I am for the sake of the argument, officially lost one round. Maybe two. Now he would have, because two of the judges gave Justin the first in this fight, so call it two. Two rounds. One of those was disputed, because one judge gave him the first in this fight. The only round he unanimously lost was the third round of his fight with Connor, and it's not like that was a blowout round for McGregor. So in, you know, eight years fighting in the UFC to have lost a whopping, you know, two rounds. Officially. T-Bell fight notwithstanding. To have a significant number of the rounds you have won be 10-8, if not more. Khabib has also never, as far as I can tell, this is true of his entire career, he has never been knocked down, and he has never been cut. Guys, you can't you can't say that about anyone else. No other UFC champion can you say that about. Even the ones that are head and shoulders above their peers. And I take Amanda. Amanda Nunes has lost a fight, has been knocked down, has been cut. Valentina has lost, 
has been cut. In fact, one of her, uh, for a while, her only career loss was due to a cut. Uh, and I mean, you, John Jones, been cut, lost a fight, disqualification loss, but still a loss. And he's been cut. Uh, Gustafson cut him. Pretty badly, actually. <laughs> you know, there's no one else you can say that about. And in a sport with... The amount of ways you can lose in MMA is so big. It, it is an exponentially wide sequence of circumstances to try and navigate. I have seen fighters lose... I've seen fighters winning fights be caught with just Hail Mary, punches, kicks, whatever. I have seen fighters just get caught in submissions. I've seen fighters injure themselves. I've seen fighters have equipment... I mean, Jake Ellenberger lost a fight because his toes got stuck in the cage. There's decisions. A decision could go your way that... uh, in purely speculative terms, maybe a close fight doesn't go your way that could have. Maybe there's, you know, something nefarious going on, and you lose a fight. Then you lose a decision that you should have won. Uh, especially on, you know, smaller regional-level MMA. That's not uncommon to have a degree of you know, corruption. I hope that's not a controversial statement. You can lose a, you know, I've seen, we've all seen fights stop due to cuts. We've seen some doctor stoppages that were questionable. You know, Michael Chandler swears up and down that he was fine to keep fighting Brent Primus in their first fight after the doctor said, no, I'm sure, I guarantee your leg's broken. Leg wasn't broken. His leg was, you know, damaged due to a leg kick, which is certainly, you know, something. But, you know, should the doctor have stopped the fight? Yeah, again, a little bit. Maybe was the doctor operating with in good faith? I'm fairly sure of that. I don't think there was some conspiracy against Chandler, but maybe you draw a doctor who's a little bit quicker on the trigger. I. There's so many ways for things to go wrong for your career in this sport, and. He avoided all of them. You just don't see that. It, it just doesn't happen. <laughs> Even the other all-time greats have a couple of these issues from time to time. And Khabib didn't. It's it, frankly remarkable. He also changed the game in a very real way, and I... I'm going to take a minute or two to talk about this specifically because that's my show and I can. There are certain bits and pieces and times during the development of the sport when what we refer to as the meta has changed. Whether that's the introduction of wall walking, uh, which is something that has changed things, when Chuck Liddell started wall walking against people, it was a somewhat radical departure from what we had come to expect. Because prior to that, the conventional wisdom was to put your opponent in the fence because shoving them in there gave them 
less opportunities for submissions. When guys figured out how to, how to use the fence, how big a deal are leg kicks, the advent of the calf kick over the last handful of years has, been, has changed the game dramatically. What Khabib did, and he did this over the course of his career, if you watch Khabib's early UFC fights, a lot more of what he does is conventional. He gets stalled out by Glayson Tebow on the fence because Tebow, very, very good at wall walking, very difficult to take down, especially against the fence. Khabib won that fight largely by process of being busier. Even though the positions were a bit more neutral, Khabib was the one kind of do. If Tebow's a little bit more active in terms of his offense, I don't. I mean, there's a very real argument to be made that he should have been given, been awarded that fight anyway. I think Khabib's kind of penchant for offense is what saved him in that decision, to be honest. But he took from that particular, uh, you know, <laughs> that particular fight that he needed to take instead of just double legs in the you know, into open space and working his uh, jujitsu game. I mean. He's not ranked in jiu-jitsu, but he used to be a lot more dedicated to passing uh, than he became in later years. He's he, he operated a bit more within the kind of established jiu-jitsu meta that is what most fighters operated under. And he decided that he just wanted to, you know, he found a different way to attack it. And what he did was continually give up and give up's the wrong word rather than transition through the positional hierarchy Khabib would find a position where he could control you even if it wasn't dominant and utilize that to inflict damage and then his just superior knowledge of of the positions his work rate etc 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 all played into this and the and he just because the conventional wisdom in MMA right now if you're taken down you scoot to the fence get your back on it uh, work to build a base and wall walk back up to your feet fight in the clinch separate if you don't want to be clinched that's what everybody does because at the moment it works for pretty much everybody it doesn't work against Khabib because Khabib's entire game started being predicated on controlling you against the fence and taking you down there. And if you could get up, you're fine, but you can't. But you couldn't get away from him. And most people would wait until someone tries to pass, and that extra space they get is what facilitates them. Being able to explode to their feet, being able, you, know, you try to pass one way, you give up a little bit of weight and pressure in this direction, I get an underhook, I use that to dig through. And Khabib would just deny them those opportunities by being content to stay in this position and inflict damage. When you then have to be the one to instigate the movement, it opens up opportunities for him to either pass or reestablish control in a different way and resume just beating on you. And that is a, a way to attack 
how the game is played that people just haven't really figured out. I mean, there's a reason nobody figured it out against Khabib. It forces you to rethink on a kind of fundamental level what do you do in different positions. I mean, look at Dustin Poirier. The Poirier fight's a great example of this. You know, Poirier is exceptional at... He's got good takedown defense to begin with. If you do get him down, he is exceptional at getting back up to his feet and then finding ways to try and break free or fighting you in the clinch and then you know, taking you down. He's very, very good at that. But the entire thought process behind I get back to the I get to the fence, I work to build a base, I work to get up to my feet is what Khabib wants you to do in a very real way because that's what opens up his game. You get to the fence, he gets top he gets half guard and is punching you in the face and stripping out your and stripping out all of your, you know, posting limbs. He strips out your arms, your legs, he's leg riding you. He uh, he'll uh, attack the legs, attack the arms, make that a very, very difficult proposition for you to try and deal with. He then, if you're able to get to your knees, he's dealing damage the whole time. By the time you do finally get to a position where you can try and get up, he mat returns you. He forces your weight one direction, he goes back the other, and the entire time... He's dealing damage. And it's just something that MMA has not yet figured out. <laughs> and we haven't seen a lot. And look, two of the other better fighters in the world and their weight class try to do kind of what he does in that respect, that being Colby Covington and Kamaru Usman. You know, they do what Khabib does differently. But if you look at their, again, kind of like, uh, big picture metagame assessments, they're in line with uh, the Khabib meta in terms of what they prioritize positionally, what they, uh, you know, uh, where they like fighting, all that kind of stuff. That's, they're within that. And those two are extraordinarily successful fighters. Uh Parts of Alexander Volkanovsky's game are very much in the Khabib meta, especially his early run in the UFC. If you look at uh, Volkanovsky's first few fights, he actually looks like a little bit of a Khabib clone. He wants to clinch you into the fence, wants to take you down, wants to get uh, posture or a somewhat dominant position and just bomb on you. And he's good about hitting mat returns from there, all that... It, so he's got that in his back pocket too. Does Volkanovski, in addition to his his striking game, which is uh, amazing in its own way, Khabib looked at the way the entire way that MMA was going, and found a way to attack it on a fundamental level. And there's not too many people that do that, and he did. Uh, he is again the light, the best lightweight I've ever seen. It's a shame we never got to see him fight Tony. It really is. That said, I, 
I was favoring him before this fight, after this fight, as I kind of looked at how this played out. I would have no problem favoring him against Tony. Uh, again, would I be shocked if Tony beat him? No, I actually wouldn't. But I, I would pick Khabib uh, all day, every day. But he, again, he leaves behind a legacy that is, uh, it, again, it's hard to truly understand it because it's dominance. It's dominance in a specific area of the game. I mean, if you look at, again, this also goes back to the meta about MMA right now. Everyone's goal is to be as well-rounded as possible. Everyone wants to have an area of where they're very good. But everyone kind of wants to you know, be good at everything. Khabib's take was, seems to have been, I will be serviceable at a couple of these things. And in these, and in this one area, two areas, I'm going to be the best. That's, again, that's not the conventional wisdom of the sport right now. But that's what he did. And it worked like a charm, man. I mean, think about this also if we think about Khabib. How many tough fights was he in? And I don't mean on paper. I mean, how many times did that man find himself in a position where he was in a war? I, None. I mean, if you look at... Uh, in terms of amount of resistance he faced in the cage, the toughest fight of his career might have been that T-Bow one. Because I think that's the most concerted resistance he faced and the least effective his offense was. I mean, if you look at the other fights he's been in, it's not that they weren't tough fighters. Because they were. You know, Edson Barboza. Very, very tough. Very good fighter. Michael Johnson. Uh, inconsistent, but, you know, the man's been in the UFC for a while and has some very impressive wins. Ally Quinta may not be a world beater and maybe overranked, but he beat Kevin... Ally Quinta's beaten Kevin Lee twice, and that's nothing to sneeze at. You know, he... Uh, you know, uh, Connor, I mean, Connor's detractors want to pretend that he's no good at all, while a chunk of his fans think he walks on water. Connor's a very, very good fighter. And he may, Khabib may have lost a round there, but was he ever in danger? Uh, no. <laughs> no, he wasn't. Dustin Poirier. Poirier's a great fighter, man. Poirier's a great fighter. And outside of landing one punch, Khabib kind of walked through him. Justin Gaethje is a machine. He is a hurricane of violence. The man who, you know, stopped Tony Ferguson. Tony's never been... Tony's only previous UFC loss was that decision to Johnson, to Michael Johnson. And Gaethje put a beating on him and stopped him in the fifth round. And Khabib beat, submits him in six and a half minutes? 
and is never really in danger. It's so unbelievably difficult to try and get your head around him because, partially because we like seeing our fight, you know, we like seeing fighters in those wars because that gives us a better sense of who they are in a more complete way, right? You think about John before the Gustafson fight and after. How did you feel about him after? Once you knew, okay, this guy can dig deep. This guy can be in a dogfight and come out on top. He's got that inside of him. We don't know that about Khabib because he's never been in that kind of a position. And it's not for lack of trying. You know, Justin Gagey will drag drag a lot of people into the depths of hell. And, and just nothing for Khabib in that respect. I... If he is really done, it has been my supreme pleasure to watch that man, to watch Khabib fight. Uh, Jeff kind of, I think Jeff accused him of being my favorite fighter last week, and I don't, I don't have a favorite. I've said this before, I said this last week. I have kind of a hierarchy in general in groups. And Khabib, oper- Khabib occupied space in the best group. The guys who I will watch in my spare time, whose tape I study to uh, help edify myself, who I am excited to watch fight. And he's far from the only fighter in that space. There's a bunch of fighters who occupy that particular, who are in that, uh, that group. And once you're in that group, I don't really differentiate within it. I, I just, I don't really see the point. But Khabib was absolutely in that group. And he was absolutely someone I just loved watching fight. And uh, I'm going to miss him as a fan and as a commentator. If that's what, uh, you know, to the, ex- to the extent that I comment on, you know, uh, MMA professionally. But there were some pretty big chain, bit, you know, pretty significant life events that that man got thrown. You know, losing a parent is something that we're all going to have, that we all have to go through at some point, unless we die very young. And it sucks. Uh, it it just sucks. There's not anything else to say about it. It does kind of alter your uh, worldview a little bit. He, he, again, that weight cut has been getting more and more difficult. And I tend to think that if you go as far as to promise your mom, not long after your father dies, that, okay, I'm going to be done fighting... That's not something you're. That's not a promise you're going to go back on lightly. I wouldn't be shocked if it, two and a half years from now things change. You know, Khabib's only thirty. What four? Thirty-two, thirty-four, something like that. He's thirty-two. Good grief. He's younger than I am. But he's been fighting for twelve years. He debuted in September of two thousand eight. Twelve a twelve year career, 
to retire on top, 29-0. Undisputed, undefeated, lightweight champion of the world. Having beaten not every one of your contemporaries, but beaten some of the best. You know, there's some names on his list that, you know, okay, not, not everyone's a killer, but he beat... He has a, you know, he got the win over T-Bow at a time when beating T-Bow was incredibly difficult. He beat Rafael Dos Anjos when he was the only guy that did so for a long time, up to and including uh, Dos Anjos winning and defending the title. The bar he beat Barboza. He submitted McGregor, Poirier, and Gaethje in successive bouts. Look, are there fights... I'm not one of those guys who's saying he's cleaned out the division. That's absolutely not true. <laughs> and there are still fights I would love selfishly to watch him in. I would If he's done and we never get that uh and we never get him and Tony Ferguson, it's a tragedy, man. It is a Greek tragedy that that fight never happened. Would have loved to have seen it. I would have loved to have seen him fight Paul Felder. I would love to see him fight Charles Oliveira. How would he deal with a guy who is just, in some respects, a straight guard player like Oliveira? You, know, you take Oliveira down, he he's not one to try and get up all that much. He does just kind of attack you. you know, how would he deal with that? Uh, there's a lot of those. I would love to watch any of those fights. And the fact that I would favor him in all of them to varying degrees is not an excuse not to have the fight. But if you look at, you know, who were the... Apart from Ferguson, he beat his best contemporaries, I think. Again, apart from, apart from Tony Ferguson. And... Uh, again, it does kind of suck... Selfishly, but when your world gets reordered, you have to reconsider some things. So, uh, if it is truly over, it has been an absolute pleasure to watch and to comment on his fights. And I wish him nothing but the best going forward. Uh, this does, uh, however, dovetail into an interesting dilemma the UFC has. What do you do with the lightweight title now? Now, there's an easy answer. Uh, the easy answer to what you do with the lightweight title is you put the vacant belt up for grabs in the fight between Dustin Poirier and Conor McGregor. Now, that fight hasn't fully been confirmed yet, but it is very much assumed to be taking place in January. And you could just throw it into that. Uh, wouldn't be shocked if they did. But, I'm going to... Uh, the UFC has a lot of talent at their disposal at the moment, when you think about this. Uh, especially at lightweight. Consider, just kind of consider who we've got here. We've got Poirier, McGregor, who are both... Uh, fighting each other. They just added Michael Chandler, who was the alternate for the main event here. You've got Tony Ferguson. 
you've got Justin Gagey all kind of floating around in this space. That's that's a lot of talent. Um, you could... I imagine what the UFC is going to do. Let me start there. They're probably just going to throw it into the Poirier-McGregor fight. I, I imagine that's what's going to happen. It is the most linear solution. It is the fastest. It is the easiest in some respects. What I would like them to do, selfishly as a fan... I would so much, and maybe, again, this is, I understand the logistics of this are complicated, and you're inviting a lot of issues. I'm not going to pretend that what I'm suggesting is the easiest. But you've got Poirier-McGregor. Make that the first fight in a tournament. Uh, You do Poirier-McGregor, let's say Chandler-Ferguson, and Gagey... No, we need a few more. So if you wanted to do four men, you'd do those two fights, I think. It's, and Gagey's just kind of the one out in the cold. Unless you wanted to do Gagey and Chandler. Because I don't think we could immediately go to a Gagey-Ferguson rematch. I, I just... I'm not saying Tony can't win that fight. I'm just saying I don't really have much of an appetite for it at the moment. So if you wanted to throw a few more in there, so that would get us to, what, six men? So we'd need two more to do an eight-man tournament. Uh, who else do we have? We have Hook, Hooker. Dan Hooker's right near the top. And Felder. Yeah, Felder. All right, so Dan Hooker, Paul Felder, uh, yeah, so that would be Hooker and Felder, Chandler and Ferguson. So Hooker and Felder, Chandler and Ferguson, uh, Poirier and McGregor. Oh, we need one more for Gagey. So Gagey and Charles Oliveira. He's near the top, right? And you can organize those brackets however you want. You can maybe even shuffle around some of the participants. I'd like to see just those guys fight each other and do a tournament-style thing for the belt. I'm selfish, I know. That's a very selfish thing for me to want. But you could also fairly easily main event pay-per-views with with tournament fights for that group. So if you're worried about Having a paper, having a title fight on pay-per-view, I think that you, I don't think it's out of line to have those fights, to have those fights main event uh, pay-per-view, or serve as co-main to another title fight if that's what you're interested in. Um, that's what I want selfishly. Again, what do I think? They'll throw it on Poirier McGregor and just try to get things moving forward as soon as possible. That's kind of what I think is going to happen. What I think is going to happen. Uh, yeah, for Gagey, he's still, 
I mean, without Khabib there, he might become champion. That's not at all out of the question. So where they go forward uh, from this, there's a lot of ways they could. Again, they could do a small tournament. They could just throw it onto a random fight. Any number of things. Uh, there's there's enough talent at lightweight to not have the issue that other divisions have had in the past when the champion has retired on top. You know, John gets stripped of the belt, and the lack of divisional strength winds up, uh, you know, being exposed and costing them things. GSP retires on top. Uh, we get Hendricks, then kind of hot-shotting to Lawler. And you know, Welterweight, again, somewhat fortunately had enough talent to be okay with that. And Lightweight has more than enough talent to, to persevere after this. You know, That belt might play hot potato for a bit. That would not surprise me at all. If, if we get, if, you know, Poirier gets a title reign that lasts, uh, you know, one defense maybe, and then Gagey gets it, and then, you know, Tony gets it. There's a degree of uh, potential chaos here that, and I think the good kind. You know, it's one thing if you've got a dominant champion beating up everybody below them when they're all very good. It's another when the dominant champion is beating people significantly below them in ability. That's less interesting. The worst thing that can happen is you have a bunch of you know somewhat sub you know somewhat subpar fighters fighting over the belt and playing hot potato with it. Fortunately, we don't have that issue at lightweight. Everyone there, especially at the top, is very very good. And we all know they're very good. We've seen them be very good. We've seen them be very good on pay-per-view. A bunch of them have had title shots. Uh, some of them have been interim champions. So you're not wanting for credibility. And you're not wanting for bodies. So I I don't know the direction specifically that they're going to go with that, but there's a lot of ways they could. And Lightweight is still... If not the best, then a very close second best division in the UFC. If we're talking about the sport worldwide, uh, yeah, it's and lightweight's probably the best, deepest division in the sport worldwide. Uh, bantamweight being probably a close second as we expand outward globally. So that's your main event. That's kind of what's. There's a lot of things up in the air now with the title, but. A lot of ways they could go. Very few of them are bad. Uh, on paper, at least. Alright, co-main event. Robert Whitaker defeats Jared Cannonier via unanimous decision. 29-28 on all three scorecards. I was 30-27 Whitaker. I don't know which round went to Cannonier. Uh, maybe the first. Um, the first was a little bit back and forth. Cannoneer landing some really solid leg kicks. Uh, as the as the round wore on, Whitaker started moving a little bit more. He got his jab going, and the jab is really what kind of stifled Cannoneer the longer the fight went on. In no small part because he 
kicking the leg when your opponent's jabbing, is, especially the way Whitaker jabs, is a really good counter to it. I say especially the way Whitaker jabs because Whitaker puts a lot of weight onto his lead leg when he jabs. He's not just flicking it out there to annoy you, he's trying to hit you. And when he does and when he does so he, there's weight going forward, so you kick someone's leg when there's a lot of weight on it, you do more damage. Cannoneer stopped at the leg kicks, I think because Whitaker started timing him. Whitaker's jab might be the best in the sport. It is that good. He has a very, very good jab. And it largely won him this fight. He was and as the fight wore on, he started timing those jabs. And that's what kind of threw Cannoneer off. It wasn't just that he was being a hit, it's that anytime he takes a step, you know, anytime he tries to take that step to get in, the jab is intercepting him. Whitaker was very, very good about finding that timing and using it to his advantage as quickly as possible. And that, and that got Cannoneer away from trying to counter the jab. And his right eye was, all, was swollen up by the end of things. Uh, third round, Whitaker lands a really nice combination, a 1-2 into a right head kick. Whitaker is very good about, and it's not an easy combination to throw, but throwing the right and then the right high kick behind it. Again, it's not easy. It's even harder to land. And that wobbled Cannoneer. He got a near finish, but Cannoneer, to his credit, persevered and Badly wobble, wobble, badly wobbled Whitaker. There we go. Towards the end of the round, uh, Whitaker stalled things out with a takedown attempt into a clinch, but Cannoneer's definitely got some power. So, in the aftermath of this, I tend to think we'll get Whitaker out of Sonya too, unless everyone is just super, super interested in uh, Sonya and John Jones. Um. I said I thought the only way that we'd get to that is if Whitaker won, like, the world's most boring fight. This wasn't the world's most boring fight. He won it cleanly. He showcased, you know, levels of skill. Reminded us of his championship form. Si would have silenced a little bit of the guys who thought that, you know, he was too timid and technical in the Till fight. So, I imagine we'll get that rematch. And I'm okay with that. I... I still favor Adesanya. Uh, I think that's just a bad matchup for Whitaker. But I'm you know, Whitaker's won two in a row since then. And over legitimate opposition. I don't see much of a reason to deny him the to deny him a shot at the belt. So I expect that will be some that will be kind of where things try to go next. And I'm okay with it. I would like to see that fight. I mean, if Adesanya beats Whitaker again, uh, that would be a heck of a thing. I mean, if you look at Adesanya already, you know, he stopped Whitaker to win the title, beat Yoel Romero to defend it, stopped Paulo Costa in the second round to, re to retain it, to you know, defend it again. If he beats Whitaker a second time, say he stops him again, um, there's, now, there's still time that could pass, but if he beats Whitaker again and then beats, you know, say someone, 
I'm going to say I'm going to say Jared Cannonier, but I don't necessarily mean him specifically. If he beats someone else in that spot, you know, maybe Jack Hermanson goes on a good run. Uh, let me bring up the UFC rankings. Actually, who else is who else is in the top little bit of middleweight here? Um, so you know, maybe Hermanson goes on a run. Maybe Till gets you know three quick wins. He'd probably need three. Or you know, Cannoneer rebounds and beats you know Costa or something. But if he beats Whitaker again and then beats the next guy down in line. Unless somebody makes a real run, um, he will have beaten a giant chunk of that division. I mean, look at it now. If we look at the rankings now, we have Adesanya champion. Whitaker, he beat. Cannonier just lost to Whitaker. Costa at three. He stopped him in the second. Hermanson just lost to Cannonier. Romero, Adesanya beat. Till, Brunson, Adesanya beat on his way to the belt. Gastelum, Adesanya beat. Weidman, I don't know why Weidman's nine. Uriah Hall, uh, Hall's got a fight this coming week. Shabazian, who just lost to Brunson. Tavares, who's on his way down, and Adesanya beat already anyway. Omari Akhmedov and Marvin Vittori, who Adesanya beat. And then Ian Heinish. He's beaten a surprisingly high number of those guys. Uh... <laughs> So, yeah, if he beats Whitaker again and then beats, I'll say Cannonier just for the sake of argument. Um, I wouldn't say he's, cl- again, he hasn't cleaned out the division in the traditional sense of the word, but he will have he will have wins, in some cases more than one, over a big chunk of the top ten. Uh, whew, that's a heck of a thing. That is a heck of a thing. Uh, I don't know what Cannonier does after this. If Uriah Hall beats Anderson Silva this uh, on Saturday, maybe you do Cannonier Hall. Otherwise, I don't know. I mean, you've got Darren Till still hanging around there. Derek Brunson, he could fight either of them. Uh, I don't know what Yoel Romero's doing. Cannonier Romero would be weird. The good kind of weird or the bad kind of weird would all come down to execution, but guaranteed weirdness between those two. Uh, and let's see, next up, at heavyweight, Alexander Volkov defeated Walt Harris via TKO, body kick and punches, uh, 1.15 of the second. Good stuff from Volkov. Harris was kind of live for the first little bit, but the more it went on, the more Volkov just kind of slowed the pace down, picked at him. Uh, the finishing sequence was really nice. He hit a really nice front kick right to the solar plex. Uh, hurt Harris badly, jumped on him, didn't let him get his win back. Good win for Volkov. Uh, I don't think he called out anyone specifically. He wants to try to get to the title picture. Uh, he was, what, seven coming into this? I think he said, like, Dos Santos or Overeem or Rosenstreich. I'd be fine with any of those, actually. Heck, have him rematch Derek Lewis. He was winning that fight handily until he got stupid in the last little bit. Uh, I'd go for for any of those fights, sure. It's heavyweight. There's, you know, a real finite amount of interest. I don't know what else to tell you. Uh, let's see. Next up, Phil Hawes 
Woof, this fight. Knocked out Jacob Malkoon in about in 18 seconds. Malkoon was only 4-0 coming into this. Hawes had fought... Hawes had two fights on Danis, on the uh, Contender Series. First one, he got head-kicked into unconsciousness by Julian Marquez to get Marquez into the UFC. Second one, he won, and that got him here. I'd like to see him against someone who's not just, you know, 4-0, uh, which strikes me as entirely too green to be in the UFC, but uh, what do I know? But, you know, impressive as heck. Uh, from Oz as far as the debut goes, so. Need to see him against better opposition, but on the main card of a pay-per-view that uh, has been trending to do very, very well, you know, good on you, man. Uh, Lauren Murphy defeated Lilia Shakarova via rear naked choke, 331 of the second. Shakarova, a late notice replacement for Cynthia Calvillo. Uh, Murphy said after the fact, I want a title shot. Well, it, and she would be the deserving contender if Jessica Andrade hadn't shown up and taken Caitlin Chukagian's soul. Uh, the only argument that Murphy has over Andrade is, uh, what would you say, Div um, divisional tenure. She's been in the division longer. Uh, Andrade has better name recognition, uh, being a former champion. Uh, had a better, fin beat a better opponent. I mean, Murphy's on, I think, a five-fight winning streak now. Uh, four. Those wins are over Angela, uh, excuse me, Mara Romero Barella, Andrea Lee, Roxanne Modafferi, and now uh, Lilia Shakarova. I don't feel too out of line in saying that. Beating Caitlin Chukagian is beating is better than beating any of those is better than any of those wins individually. Uh, so she's gonna wind up having to fight one more time or sit out and try to wait, because unless something happens to Andrade or uh, Shevchenko, I'm pretty sure Andrade is getting the next title shot. Uh, that is of course still pending the outcome of. Uh, Valentina Shevchenko's title defense against Jennifer Maya, which will take place in December. Uh, yeah, Murphy, just the timing's a little bit off, and unfortunately, a much more recognizable name scored a much more impressive win over a better fighter. Uh, sorry about your damn luck, as the saying goes. <laughs> and kicking off the main card, Magomed Ankalaev knocked out Iwan Kutalaba, 419 of the first. Um, bad stoppage here, by which I mean late. Um, Ankalaev, the better fighter, obviously. Um, uh, kind of clipped Kutalaba coming in with a... Who was Southpaw? Ankalaev was Southpaw. So he clipped him with a right hook and this just perfectly timed left hand right on the jaw, dropped Ankalaev. He was... Excuse me, dropped Kutalaba. He was down. He w They could have waved this as soon as he got knocked down like that because he fell the wrong way. You know, he fell in a way that a little bit loose, head smacked the canvas. Uh, could have been waved off right then. Uncle Iev gets on top and unleashes ground and pound. Kutalaba tries to cover up. The ref watches. The ref watches him just cover up and get hit. 
not moving, not trying to improve his position or defend himself further. And eventually a few of those get through, and Ankalaev puts him completely to sleep with concussive blows. Should have been stopped earlier. I'll stand by that. Uh, this was a giant... This was a giant waste of everyone's time. Alright, we wasted... When was their first fight? Because their first fight... Again, bad stoppage the other way. Not a first fight. Happy to admit it. But that was in February of this year. We wasted almost an entire year with one of the few rising uh, contender contenders. Uncle Ed's not a prospect anymore. There's a handful of young-ish rising contenders at light heavyweight. And light heavyweight desperately needs them. Ankalaev's one of them. And we waste, he wasted his entire 2020 fighting Iwan Kutalaba twice. Really? Just a giant waste. A giant waste of his time. Alright. Giant waste of his time. Uh, anyway, that was your main card. We said beforehand, this is kind of a two-fight card, those being the top two. Fairly true. Uh, Volkov and Harris at least didn't suck too badly, especially the way heavyweight fights can suck. And Hawes, you know, 18-second demolition of somebody. I'm only going to complain about that so much. I would never pay 65 bucks for Phil Hawes and Jacob Malkoon, but... Uh, you know, I, the only fights on this main card I would have paid for were the top two fights. Even the co-main, I... Yeah, I might have been okay paying for the co-main if Whitaker was still champion. Uh, as for the prelims, Tai Tuivasa knocked out Stefan Struve, 459 of the first. To the shock of no one, Stefan Struve again bullied into the fence and bombed on by a much shorter power puncher. Stop me if you've heard that before. Casey Kenny defeated Nathaniel Wood via unanimous decision, 229-28-130-27. Um, this was your fight of the night, and boy, these two guys. This pace was absolutely insane. Um, these two fought at a ridiculous clip through all 15 minutes. Uh, both men landed a lot of blows, leg kicks, body kicks, punches to the head and body, takedowns, scrambles, uh... My hat's off to these two guys, man. Great fight. Great fight. Um, the debuting Shavkat Rachmanov defeated Alex Oliveira via guillotine choke, 440 of the first. Uh, Rachmanov looked good. He looked pretty good everywhere. Decent at distance. Uh, strong clinch game. Muscling around Oliveira is not easy. Oliveira's a strong guy. Then grabbing that guillotine choke as they were going down. Uh, hard to say after just one UFC appearance, but uh, guy's undefeated. Looks to be pretty legit, so we'll keep an eye on him going forward. Daun Jung and Sam Alvey fought to a split draw. 129-28 for Jung, 129-28 for Alvey, and then 128-28. My official scorecard, such as my scorecards are official, was 29-28 Alvey. I thought Alvi kind of edged out the first two rounds. But there was so little that happened, I don't really care that somebody gave, you know, Jung one of them. The third round was all Jung. 
I didn't go 10-8, but I don't really object to the 10-8 score in that round. Jung clobbered Sam Alvey with an elbow, uh, dropped him with it, got on top, looked for the finish, couldn't quite, and couldn't finish him, uh, wobbled him at another at another couple of points with strikes. So I, I don't disagree with the 10-8. It's not where I landed, but I don't think it's wrong. I don't care that this went to a draw. The fight, outside of the last round when things started happening, it wasn't very good. Uh, then our early prelims, Miranda Maverick defeated Liana Jojua via TKO doctor stoppage between rounds one and two. Maverick landed a really nice left, she's a southpaw, so a left up elbow that opened a pretty nasty gash along the bridge of Jojua's nose. And that's what prompted the fight, the stoppage. Apparently it wasn't broken, but they could not get that thing to stop bleeding, man. Um, the cut man between rounds was trying to get it to stop, and it couldn't. He couldn't get it to stop bleeding. And the ringside doctor looked at the cut and decided he didn't like what he saw. I don't know if he was seeing a lot of cartilage there or what, but uh, the doctor's call, not mine. Whether you agree... Uh, at the time, I was okay with it, you know, seeing the more the more concrete diagnosis. You know, there was no there was no break; it was just, you know, a, a you know kind of a gnarly cut. But I don't know. Again, dubious, little bit questionable. Uh, the doctor erred on the side the doctor erred on. Uh, Maverick looked really good uh, throughout that first round, so. Kudos to her. Solid fight. And kicking everything off, Joel Alvarez defeated Alexander Yakovlev via armbar three minutes of the first. Alvarez sold out for a guillotine choke on the ta on the first takedown from Yakovlev. Got pretty tight on occasion, but Yakovlev survived, got free. Just got a little bit slow as Alvarez uh, underhooked one of his legs, spun for the arm. Uh... He tried the kind of like hitchhiker walking around escape, but he couldn't get any motion through his arm, elbow, and shoulder, which is where you need it to alleviate the pressure. So, Yakovlev tapped. Good win for Alvarez. I mean, Alvarez missed weight. Oliveira missed weight earlier uh, for his fight. But Alvarez is pretty legit. He's got a couple of... He's 3-0 and in the UFC now, I believe. Uh... Sorry, three and one. He lost to Demir Ismagulov, then finished Danilo Beloar excuse me, Beloluardo. Beloardo? Beloardo. Uh, finished Joseph Duffy, and then he now finished Alexander Yakovlev. So, uh, three and one at lightweight is nothing to sneeze at. And, yeah, that was the event, UFC 254. Uh, higher trafficked event because, you know, of the celebrity involved, to the shock of no one. Uh, thank you to everyone for following along live, for reading after the fact. I know it was earlier for some people, so a lot of people uh, might have had other stuff going on than sitting down at 2 p.m. Eastern for the start of the main card. But thank you to everyone for reading. Always appreciate the support that you guys give me. It is humbling and motivating as usual. So thank you all very much for that. All right, moving on. Let's have a look at this coming fight. On Halloween, because the UFC is still kind of desperate to make up 
make up some uh, events. Uh, we have UFC on fight UFC on ESPN plus thirty nine. Um, main event: Uriah Hall and Anderson Silva. This is allegedly Uri uh, Anderson Silva's last fight in the UFC. Dana White said that. Anderson Silva said that. Whether he fights elsewhere uh, after the fact or... Uh, sorry. Some random thing I saw about that. Anyway, uh, whether they fight... Whether Anderson fights elsewhere, if he goes to, you know, does the Bellator thing or whatnot, I don't know. But... Uh, I and Anderson's, you know, kind of hinted at retirement before. The big difference here in this case being time. Silva's now forty-five. I mean, there aren't too many people. There aren't too many forty-five-year-olds in the UFC at all. Uh, so that time comes for everybody. This could very well be it for Anderson Silva. Uh, Another absolute legend. Yeah, I've said this before, I think. I know I saw UFC fights before this one. Because I'm... I watched... Uh, I watched the last two rounds of Griffin Bonner 1 live. Uh, so I know I watched other fights before this one, but my... And I can kind of recall that. But if you want my first real concrete memory of watching MMA, it is, in point of fact, Anderson Silva's UFC debut against Chris Lieben. I was following a little bit at the time, not a, not as much as I do now, obviously. I knew, so I knew enough about Chris Lieben's reputation as kind of, you know, having a head like a dump truck. And watching Anderson Silva just beat the brakes off of him in, you know, less than 60 seconds was breathtaking. And that that is my first real clear kind of concrete memory of watching this sport is Anderson Silva. And if this is, in fact, the end, uh, the man, again, another absolute legend, longest reign I mean, he's got the longest UFC winning streak ever at 16. Uh, he's got... He had, he doesn't have the most title defenses anymore after De because of Demetrius. But he does have the longest title reign in UFC history. Because uh, uh, his reign lasted for 2,457 days. It's a long time to be champion. And he had some absolutely spectacular title defenses during that period of time. Uh, how is he? How is he going to do against Uriah Hall in 2020? Again, Silva's 45. Hall's 36. He's not exactly a spring chicken, but that 10 years from 36 to you know from 35 to 45 is not the same as 25 to 35. <laughs> Uh, I don't know. I mean, emotionally, I do want to pick Silva just because. I mean, Uriah Hall's looked okay in his last couple of fights. 
was the last fight? He's on a two-fight winning streak. He had the split... His last fight was the split decision with uh, Shoeface. I seem to recall kind of thinking that uh, good old Shoeface won that. That was over a year ago. He's been out for a while. Jeez. All right. I am happy to admit this is a purely emotional pick on my end, but I'll pick Anderson Silva. Um... You know, Uriah Hall's... He's been a bit of a head case at times. Wouldn't shock me if he winds up a bit too dear in the headlights for this. Then again, he might just, you know, knock... He might knock Silva into retirement unconscious, uh, which would not surprise me all that much. But, for nostalgia's sake, I'm, I'm gonna pick Anderson. Hope he gets one more kind of, you know... Uh all-time great moment. Because Silva's had a bit of a rough stretch recently. Yeah, he's 1-4 in, in his last five, and that one win was a little bit iffy. I thought I thought, uh, I thought Brunson beat him. Then he lost to Anderson, or to Adesanya, excuse me, then his last appearance uh, in May of 19, so you know, 18 months or so. He got TKO'd by leg kicks when he fought Jared Cannonier. Uh, yeah, and again, it's a nostalgia pick. It's probably wrong, but I'll eat the L on that one just to, uh, just for the sake of, you know, <laughs> how I feel about it. All right, let's see about the rest of this card. Andre Feely against Bryce Mitchell. It's a big step up for Mitchell. Uh, Mitchell's undefeated. Whereas Feely... Been in the UFC for a while is Feely. Feely's been seven years in the UFC at this point. I, I mean, at this point, I do kind of feel that if Feely were going to have done anything notable, he would have done it. The question is just, is he, you know, a little bit too far past it for Mitchell, or is he the type of test that Mitchell isn't quite ready to overcome? gonna pick Feely, but wait, Feely won his last fight. Probably means he's gonna lose this one. Yeah, okay, changing my mind. Going with Mitchell. Uh, will not be shocked one little bit if <laughs> not one little bit if Feely pulls this off. Feely is the you know, more technical party, more proven against a better level of opposition, but. Mitchell's a hurricane. He's a little bit of a handful. So, uh, I'll pick Mitchell. Uh, Kevin Holland will fight Mahmoud Muradov. Muradov's fought in the UFC before, I think. I want to confirm that. Uh, he's Uzbek. Yeah, he's fought in the UFC. Now he knocked out Trevor. He's fought twice. Hmm. Holland's on a pretty good run at the moment. Uh, he had the split decision win over Darren Stewart that I thought he lost. Hmm. I actually am going to go with Muradov here, I think. Might be very, very wrong, but uh, I'm going to do it anyway. 
Let's see. Then we have Maurice Green and Greg Hardy. Oh, God, why? Uh, Green coming off of a win. Yeah, he arm triangled John Vellante. Oh, God, that was hilarious. That was so funny. <laughs> that shouldn't have happened. Oh, I don't mean to laugh too much at uh, Green, but... Yeah, and then there's Greg Hardy, who... You know, not very good. Sorry, that yawn there is entirely appropriate for Greg Hardy's MMA career. Um, probably Hardy. Green has some decent kickboxing, but he doesn't do well when pressed. I don't know. Greg Hardy's... Greg Hardy doesn't really have an identity as a fighter. You know? Which is kind of an odd thing at this point. I I don't know who he is in the cage. I mean, he's got power, but... I don't really know him as a striker, or a brawler, or a wrestler, or a guy with a good jab. Or maybe a one-weapon kind of guy in terms of, you know, the right hand. But has a specific couple of ways to set it up. Is he a front runner? Is he an early fighter? There's just all these giant unknowns when it when it comes to again just no identity as a fighter. Doesn't mean no skill, but I don't know who he is. You know, if that makes any sense. So gonna go with Hardy though, but yeah, I don't know that that one could very easily go either way. And at lightweight, ooh, good fight here, actually. Bobby Green, the resurgent king. Uh, on a three-fight winning streak, with all three of those being pretty darn good wins. Uh, you know, wins over Clay Guido, Lando Venata, and Alon Patrick. He's fighting Tiago Moises, who uh, has a few fights in the UFC. He's gone two and two. Uh, losses to Benil Daryush and Demiris Magulov. Wins over Kurt Holobo and Michael Johnson. He hit Johnson with that uh, Achilles lock, that straight ankle lock, earlier this year that was really sweet, actually. So that's a good fight. I'm going to pick Green. I, Bobby Green's form recently has been great, man. He's looked really good. So I'm, I'm going to pick him. Uh, that's your main card. As for the prelims... Chris Grutzmacher and Alexander Hernandez. Let's see, Grutzmacher. I uh, put that beating on. He's been out for a while, man. He he put that beating on Joe Lozon back in April of eighteen. But that's been a while. That's you know over two years, two and a half years, give or take. It's a long time to be out. Whereas Hernandez... Uh, been a bit up and down. His entire UFC run's been a bit up and down. Coming off the loss to Dober. With the layoff, I'm going to go with Hernandez. But if Gritzmacher has improved his... Been working on his game the whole time and is able to... Sh I wouldn't be surprised if he shows up and shows off new tricks, but... Uh, that is kind of an assumption on my part. Let's see, we have Adrian Yanez and Victor Rodriguez. 
I believe both of these gentlemen are making their debuts. Yanez, yes, off of the Contender Series. And Rodriguez, uh, as well, making his UFC debut. So, Rodriguez, four fights in a row. Yanez, I think, three in a row. Uh, also four in a row. I'll go with Yanez, but I don't know enough about either man to feel terribly confident in that pick. Well, let's see. Sean Strickland will fight Jack Marshman. Uh, Strickland been out for, it'll be just about two years when he walks into the cage. It'll be a little over. Because his last fight, uh, he knocked out Nordin Taleb in October of 18. So, two years out's a long time. Um, he had a motorcycle accident, apparently. Jeez. Uh, that, yeah, that that's rough, because he had a pretty good run. He, he looked good against Taleb. Uh, by contrast, Marshman has gone 2-4 and four in the UFC. 3? Yeah, 3-4. and four. I'll, Even with the layoff, I'll go with Strickland. Marshman is decidedly pedestrian. At welterweight, Cole Williams and Jason Witt. Let's see. Is Witt, I think this is Witt's debut. No, he lost to, lost to Takashi Sato back in June. How do I not remember that? And Williams, I'm pretty sure Williams has fought a couple of times for the UFC. Uh, just once, actually. He lost to Claudio Silva in 19, a little over a year ago. I'll go with Wit, but that's based entirely on activity. Uh, Dust, excuse me, yeah, Dustin Jacoby and Justin Ledette fighting at light heavyweight. Uh, Jacoby making his UFC, his return to the UFC. He had two fights in the UFC, in one in 11 and one in 12. He lost both of them and was cut. He was fighting, what, down at middleweight for those? Against Clifford Starks and Chris Camozzi? Yeah, it would have been middleweight. So now he's been bouncing around between, uh, more light, more in the light heavyweight area. That's where he is here. Uh, Ledette coming down, uh, you know, cut down from heavyweight and promptly lost three in a row. Uh, you know, one of those to Alexander Rakich, fine, Rakich top contender. One of those to Johnny Walker, fine, Walker, you know, is what he is at this point. The loss to Alexa Kammer was probably a little bit more troubling. Um, I'm going to pick Ledette, but this is kind of do or die for him. I mean, he honestly might be better off moving back up to heavyweight and just being smaller, but a lot faster and more technical. Um, at women's flyweight, Courtney Casey will fight Priscilla Cachuea. Um, Cachuea did, miraculously, get a win in her last fight when she knocked out Shauna Thompson. Uh, Casey, been really up and down coming off of the loss to Jillian Robertson, but I don't pick Priscilla Cachuea to win fights, so, <laughs> yeah. And kicking everything off, Miles Johns and Kevin Natividad. Natividad, excuse me. Um, John, both of these guys have fought in the UFC before, I'm pretty sure. Johns, yeah, Johns has two fights, actually. He's gone one and one. B 
beat Cole Smith and lost to Mario Batista. That Batista loss was pretty rough. I, I remember that finish. And Natividad. Um, I could swear he's been in the UFC before. Has he not? There's some brother of his or something that's in the UFC. Because I know that name. Well, I'm going. I know the name. I'm just kind of going to. Oh, that's it. He was supposed to fight Brian Kelleher. That's where I knew it because I, I I knew I'd talked about him before. He and Kelleher were supposed to fight a, a month or so ago, and that got canceled. Okay, that's where I knew it from. Bugging me. I don't mind picking Natividad there, but that's two guys. One's ten and one, the other's nine and one. Uh, could go either way. A lot of you know growth potential for both gentlemen. So I pick Natividad to whatever extent you want to give value to that. And I personally tend to give not a whole lot to my picks on those particular fights, but that is kind of what we're doing. What I what we do here. So anyway, that how so on Halloween if you are. So inclined, if you have the time and the uh, and the energy after dealing with trick-or-treaters or while they're going on to stop by my coverage, please do so. Say hello. I always appreciate you guys. Uh, yeah, that will be in the MMA Zone of 411 Mania. Um, God. Oh, I suppose I should mention this. All right, this is the only thing I have for news at the moment. Um, Leon Edwards has agreed to fight Kamzat Shemaev. This would, this hasn't been, uh, the, it's been reported but not officially announced. This would be the main event for the last card of the year, UFC on ESPN plus 44. That'd be December uh, 12th, I think, something like that. Um, man. Odd spot for Leon Edwards. You know, look, Edwards. Edwards kind of got screwed over by the by the pandemic of the way a lot of people did. But remember, he was supposed to fight Tyron Woodley like right before the U.S. Uh, started shutting things down. So, and he, I don't blame him for not, you know, making a two and a half hour drive to get to the airport on short notice to fly to the United States with no venue uh, secured for a potential fight with Tyron Woodley. And, you know, to his credit, if he had gone, he would have been stuck here for a while, the way that played out. So I don't blame him, but it did kind of screw him over in that respect. Uh, he didn't do himself any favors earlier, uh, you know, uh, a few weeks ago. He started saying, I want to fight someone in the top five. I'm you know, sick of waiting around, blah, blah, blah. Well, the number five contender, Stephen Thompson, in fact, said, sure, I'll fight you. And, and Edwards declined to fight Stephen Thompson. So it's just not a good look when you call out someone in the top five. Don't specify anyone. Someone in the top five says, sure. And you respond to that with, no, I'd rather not, thanks. Uh, 
So now he's fighting Shemaev. Um, if Shemaev pulls that off, comes into the UFC, that would be his fourth win in the year, and beats a ranked guy, a guy ranked as highly as Edwards is, uh, to go 4-0, and especially if he does it in similar fashion. I don't expect him to run over Edwards the way he has his other opponents. Edwards is very clearly a class above them. But even if he faces adversity, say he finishes him. Uh, whew, that would be not only big for his career, that would be very, very informative about it. You know, there's a lot of hype around Shemaev. Some of it is understandable and warranted, but there's a lot of people... The fight against Gerald Mershart was the type of step up he should have taken against a proven veteran, but Mershart was unranked. Come on. Let's stop the people going, yeah, he needs us to be fighting top five guys. I, I disagree. He hasn't fought anyone ranked in any of the divisions he's fought in the UFC. Not saying he couldn't beat those guys. I'm saying let's not pretend that this is, you know, I'm not on the Shemaev champion 2021 uh, hype train like Daniel Cormier. But, I mean, because he clearly has ability. But, uh, and this would, if he beats Edwards, that would kind of solidify it. He'd only be fighting those guys at the very top, for better or for worse. So, that's kind of all the news I have. Uh, let me check Twitter, see if anything crazy happened in the world of MMA while we've been doing this. Alright, nope, doesn't look like anything crazy happened, so let's go ahead and do plugs, because I sort of have those. Alright, um, there was supposed to be a comic strip over on the Radulich and Broadcasting Network. Mark Radulich and I were going to have a look through uh, The Empty Man, the first... The first volume, which was like eight shorter, like the first, uh, the first yeah, group, so was eight, I don't know how they, I don't know how they differentiate those. Uh, the first book, which was I don't know, maybe it's the first book, which was eight shorter volumes. I don't know. But we were gonna read through that, which I already have, and then compare and contrast it with the movie that's uh, out in theaters now. Mark told me that you know uh, I got a message today from Mark canceling that, so we will not be doing that. Uh, uh, that was supposed to be Tuesday, but look, I don't have, the trailer for that movie was so bad. So bad. So, not gonna be that. Uh, there might be, I think we were gonna do, there was gonna be a uh, review, a review of the, uh, the Witches, the recent adaptation directed by Robert Zemeckis, that is on HBO Max. Uh, myself, Mark, and Alexis Haina were going to get together and talk that. I think that will be before Halloween this week. Uh, depending on the timing. Uh, Alexis Haina and I got together to talk about the HBO uh, limited, well, the first season, I suppose, of Lovecraft Country. You can find that over on the uh, the Radlich and Broadcasting Network subgroup of the W2M Network, wherever your podcasts are found. We got a TV party for that one. Let's see. Uh, 
Monday, or excuse me, not Mondays, Fridays, I cover WWE SmackDown in the wrestling zone of 411 Mania, so if you're interested in that, please stop by over there. Feel free to say hello. I appreciate it. And I review MLW Underground, which is the re-airing of that old product for MLW right now. Um, it's, it's not good. It's just not good. This week's episode was bad. Just so bad. I don't think I had a single positive thing to say about it. Uh, okay. And yeah, Saturday on Halloween, Silva versus Hall in the MMA Zone of 411 Mania. And back here next week to review that one and preview the Santos versus Teixeira card. Uh, hopefully we'll have a finalized bout order, because right now all we know is Tiago Santos versus Glover Teixeira as your main event. Which they've been trying to make for a while now. Uh, the rest of that card doesn't look awful. Uh, Carlos Diego Fajaya and Drew Dober's a good fight. Claudia Gedalia and Jan Shaunan is a relevant fight for strawweight. What else do we have there? Uh, Tanner Bozier and Andre Arlovsky might not suck. That might be a bit of a stretch on my part, but I'm going to stick by it. Uh, so, yeah, we'll have a full preview of that next week. And however, however it might have changed between now and then, because that's the world we live in. All right, uh, that's going to be it for me. Thank you all again very much. Appreciate you guys. Until next time, stay safe out there, and please continue to be well, be safe, and behave.